This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right. So, sorry, this is something new here with the stand. I, I really like both my hands, so I might be fidgeting a little bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, I've been really enjoying the Psalms. Uh, every summer, we kind of take some time to, to work through the Psalms because. Ultimately, it uh, allows us to kind of hop in and out because people are kind of out and whatnot throughout the summer. It's hard to have a good, steady continuity for the most part. Um, but either way, whenever we first introed the Psalms uh, years ago, when we started this pattern of going through the Psalms in the summertime, we said that the Psalms cover the, the wide array of human emotions. And so we kind of see insight in the Psalms and how to approach God in the midst of all these emotions. And so uh, today we have uh, one of those. It's a very uh, joyous psalm, much like last week. Um, but this psalm, it has something that uh, not a whole lot of other psalms do. In fact, only 13 other psalms have as detailed of a heading as this one has. And so when we see that heading, we get a little bit more insight into the context, what was going on when this psalm was written. And so whenever we read the setting or the heading of uh, Psalm 34, it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. Now that by itself sounds kind of odd. Um, <laughs> we've changed his behavior so they drove him out and he went away. Um, but uh, what was going on here, if you, if you know David, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And eventually he became Israel's greatest king. Uh, so much so that after David died, they were like, when are we going to get another king like David? When is another king like him coming? Um, but at this point in his life, he wasn't there yet. He wasn't a king. He was serving in the former King Saul's courts. And uh, the, the rub and the problem was that David, who wasn't the king, had become more famous even than Saul himself. And so there were actually songs that had been popularized that talked about and sung about how much greater David was going to be than Saul. And so that sat really well with Saul, right? So <laughs> Saul the king was jealous of that, and so he wanted David dead. He wanted him out of the picture. And so David, he learned that Saul was going to kill him, so he ran away. And to make a really, this, you can find this in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. Uh, specifically, this heading refers to verses 10 to 15. I would encourage you to go read that because it gives you more of the story. Um, but to make a long story short, because we don't have a ton of time today, um, David found himself, after he had fled, in the town of Gath which uh, that Gath is, is, it wasn't in Israel. It was in the land of the Philistines. Uh, if you know anything about your Old Testament, you know that Israel, God's people, and the Philistines were almost constantly at war. And uh, to another level of this is that Gath is actually the hometown of the giant Philistine that David killed, Goliath. And to make matters worse, David had Goliath's sword. Uh, that undoubtedly also would have been famous. <laughs> and so uh, he's in Gath, and I guess he's thinking that nobody's going to notice him, but uh, some of the king's servants, they recognize him, and he hears them, I guess he hears them reference the song about how David's going to be even greater than Saul. And so they take him into custody, and they're bringing him to the king. And so David had just fled Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. And now he's on his way to this enemy king, who has heard about this song about how great of a king David's going to be, and David's by himself, and he's defenseless. And so he kind of jumped, like, from the frying pan to the fire here. 
And so um, David, it says in uh, 1 Samuel, it says when he came into the, the throne room of the king, and the king is, uh, Abimelech is another name for king, kind of like we have Pharaoh for the like, king of Egypt. We have Abimelech as the king of the Philistines here. And so uh, in the story, it's confusing because David had just seen a priest named Abimelech, and then he goes to Gath, uh, and then, yeah, it comes before Abimelech, uh, Achish, who's the king of, uh, of Gath right there. But it says that David changed his behavior and pretended to be insane. It says he let drool run down his beard. Uh, he clawed at the doorposts. And so whenever the king saw him, he said, don't we have enough insane people to deal with already? Like, get this guy out of here. And so he kicked David out of Gath. And so, but David was, was safe. And so this song kind of arises out of that situation and that scenario. And there's actually another song. Uh, this event was so prominent and it was a, it was a traumatic experience for David. Uh, there's another psalm that he wrote whenever he was in captivity about to be taken to the king uh, Abimelech of uh, the Philistines. Uh, and in that psalm, the tone is very different. It's, he's asking for deliverance. He's asking for protection. Um, but once he is uh, kicked out of, of Gath, he then goes to a cave named Adullam. And it says at that cave, he has family members join him, but he also has 400 other people who are uh, in debt, who are destitute. I think Samuel calls it, uh, they, they're bitter in soul. And so uh, and it says he's kind of like the commander of those like 400 people at the cave of Adullam. Um, and so, yeah, so that kind of is the background and what's going on here. And so you can see why uh, it's such a positive tone because he's just been, all his prayers to, for protection have just been answered by God. Um, but a couple of things about this psalm, it's an acrostic psalm. Uh, that means that... Uh, the, each verse has an, a successive letter of the alphabet. It starts with a successive letter of the alphabet, like verse 1 would start with A, verse 2 with B, and so forth. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions on that that we don't have time to really dig into, but for the most part, with the exception of two verses, it follows that pattern of being an acrostic psalm. Um, and then there's kind of a funny structure. I shouldn't say funny. There's a structure to this psalm, too. And so first off, uh, the first part is kind of a, a song, which, duh, this is a song, um, and so I guess we can't, let's like, can't call it a song of songs because there's a book for that later. Uh, it's like a songy song, I guess. And then there's a, like a sermon, a teaching part. And uh, so it's, I guess, a sermony song. So it's kind of divided into two parts. Um, but ultimately, David, as he uh, sings the song, he's trying to get us to, along with him, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's kind of a central uh theme here in this song, to, for us to taste and see that the Lord, Yahweh, is good. And so uh, within that, we have, uh, whenever we do, whenever we are able to taste and see that the Lord is good, uh, we see that we can have joy in Yahweh. We see that we also fear Yahweh, and we also find our refuge in Yahweh. And so that's kind of where we're going. Um, and just to kind of, whenever you see the Lord in here, um, that really is uh, David using Yahweh's name. And so whenever Jewish people read that, they would replace it so that they, there was no chance of them taking the Lord's name in vain, and they would say Adonai. They would say Lord instead of Yahweh. But um, David's using his name. And so, yeah, so before we jump into the psalm, let's pray and ask God to, to meet us here. Father, we're thankful that we get to gather here this morning and, and sing your praises. 
And we're thankful that we have um, collections of works such as the Psalms that instruct us on how to approach you just in the, in the variety of, of the emotions that uh, you made us capable of. And so today as we um, interact with a song that's uh, exuberant towards you, I pray that you would enable us to taste and see that you are good. I know that each of us comes here with a different range of emotions today, and it might not be one of exuberance, but God, I pray that you would, regardless of how we come to you today, I pray that you would help us to taste and see that you are good. God, I pray that any words that are just mine would fall flat. I pray that you would speak to us today. You would stir our hearts to worship you, and you would bring us more and more into the image of your son. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so David, freshly delivered from uh, Gath, from, uh, yeah, the Abimelech of Gath. Um, he, he jumps in and he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so there are a few things that uh, we don't really say in there. And so, uh, but this language is, is full of, of the, it's, it's all over the, the scriptures. And so uh, we really don't use words like, I will bless the Lord very often, or I like magnify the Lord with me. I mean, if we know anything about the Bible, we know that uh, the Lord is the one who is blessed. The Lord is magnificent. He's holy. He's great. We cannot make him any greater. That's impossible. And so usually when we use the words bless, it, it, it entails a provision of one thing to another person. The person who receives that thing is the one who is blessed. But there's nothing that we can give God that would make him more blessed than he already is. And there's not, we can't magnify him. We can't make him greater than he already is. But what David is doing here when he says, uh, I will bless the Lord at all times. He's seeing God's goodness and he's seeing his greatness and his holiness and he's putting it in front of him and he's praising him for it. He's saying, Yahweh, you are blessed. You are magnificent. And so uh, he's, he's acknowledging the goodness and the greatness and the holiness of God and he's praising him for that. So much so even that he says, my soul makes it makes its boast in Yahweh. And so he's saying, Yahweh, you are the best thing about me. And so that's what's going on here. It's we're not giving anything to God. It's not that he needs anything from us or from David. It's not that we're making him greater and he needs us to make him greater for his own glory. It's that we're recognizing that he already is good, that he already is magnificent and holy, and we're praising him for that so that our souls then boast in him so that he is the best thing about us. And so David here, he's he's telling people about, he's 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 boasting about the goodness of the Lord, the goodness of Yahweh. And so uh, he keeps going here. And uh, next he kind of says, why? And so he's, he kind of outlines his, his personal experience with Yahweh. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. 
and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So do you hear that personal why? This is why he's so great. And so I think we all kind of follow that pattern when we're telling people about things that we like. And so naturally, things that we like, we're going to tell people about it. Um, I'm sure we did it just now in the kind of meet and greet time while we were passing off kids. Um, but we, we naturally talk about things that we like. And so think, think of something that you like. Maybe it's a restaurant. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a hobby. Um, YouTube channel, podcast. Like think of something that you're really into recently. I can almost guarantee that those that you talk to a lot know about that thing because you've, you've told them about it, because you, you like it. Generally, you spend some time saying, this thing is great, and then you tell them why, and then later you're going to say, you have to come experience this with me, and we'll see that here in the psalm too. But, uh, for example, Carboncitos at 38th and Pecos is the best Mexican restaurant in Denver. They have the best El Pastor tacos. Like, I've not found... An Al Pastor taco that's as good as Carboncitos, you have to go try them out. The first time, I distinctively remember the first time I tried a Carboncitos taco. I put the, their homemade salsa on it, and I took a bite. I was praising God from whom all blessings come for making food taste so good. <laughs> it was so good. And so that's, that's why. And so um, like fly fishing, you've all heard me talk about fly fishing. Uh, to me, there's no better place to be than up in the high country at a river or lake, bringing in beautiful fish that God created to live in beautiful places. And he enables us to go experience those. And so, uh, yeah, I've invited several of you along with me fly fishing and uh, would like to invite many more as time permits. But unfortunately, there's not enough time in the day. Um, but yeah, so... We naturally kind of do that. We, we talk about how good something is, and then we tell them why based on experience. And then we invite you into it. And so David here, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, I sought the Lord. And this, it's not like a, a hide-and-seek kind of sought. Like, it's not like David's like, where are you, Lord? Like, he knows how to find him. He knows where he is. This seeking is kind of like a, an approaching one who is trusted for help. And so he seeks the Lord, and the Lord doesn't disappoint him. He answers him. The Lord delivered me from all my fears. And so this, uh, this kind of deliverance, saving, uh, rescuing out of, this repeats itself seven times throughout the psalm. And so pay attention for that as we go. Uh, but that signifies that it's something that's a really prominent theme in the psalm is that it repeats itself, especially seven times. Um, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. He says, this, it's not just me. Like anybody who looks at him, their faces are going to be radiant. They're never going to be put to shame. Look at him. Your face will be radiant too. And then he, he goes on, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And that's another phrase there uh, that repeats itself three times throughout this psalm. Saved or delivered out of all. So pay attention to that. That repeats itself three times throughout this psalm, making it uh, very important as well. Uh, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And so David, 
he's in a state of having a prayer freshly answered. And so he's overflowing with joy. And so as you and I approach God, uh, we love it when that's the case. We love it when we're overflowing with joy and gratitude for God. But the reality is that's, that's not always the case. Sometimes we approach him in, in, on the total different opposite side of the coin. Sometimes we're disappointed, we're upset, we're confused, we're angry. Sometimes we're ambivalent. Um, we're not always overflowing with joy. And so how does a psalm address that? <laughs> I mean, what do we do when we're not naturally, our natural approach to God isn't one of overflowing gratitude? And I think this song is, is a good model for that. I mean, first off, David's remembering something that the Lord had done for him. He's remembering that Yahweh had, had delivered him from all of his fears. And so I hope and pray that each of us has had some sort of interaction with God that's similar to this that you can remember. Remember that time when God provided for you. Remember that time when he pulled you out of your fears, when he saved you from all of your troubles. Remember that time. And another thing David's doing here is he's telling that to other people. And so as David goes, you can, you can hear his joy kind of building on itself. And so there's a, a saying, our joy is never complete until what? It's shared. And so David here, he's, he's remembering what God has done for him. And he's, he's sharing that. And so find somebody uh, here, one of your friends, tell them about what God has done for you. Tell them about how God delivered you from your fears, how he saved you from your troubles. And my bet is that in doing that, your joy will, will, will come back. It'll increase. You'll remember what God did and how he pulled you out of the miry pit. And the third thing, too, is uh, it's not necessarily in this psalm, but it's in the counterpart psalm that David wrote uh, leading up to this. Ask him to do it again. Ask him to deliver you. Ask him to... Yeah, save you from your fears. Whatever is making you apathetic, whatever is making you angry, whatever is making you uh, fearful, ask him to deliver you from that. That's a good thing. He wants you to do that. He wants you to come to him to ask for deliverance. And so ask him to deliver you and, and see what he does with it. Share that ask with other people so that we can ask alongside you. And so... Uh, if we don't always approach God in a state of exuding joy, but there are things that we can do to remember uh, the provision and the protection and deliverance of God so that that joy can, can be returned. Um, yeah, so, um, and that's the, the cool thing too, is while I do hope and pray that we've all had some sort of experience with God like that, if you haven't, you're not out of luck. David keeps going. If you're struggling in particular, if you've tried to remember, if you've tried to share with others, if you've asked him for deliverance and it seems to be falling on deaf ears, David keeps going. He says in verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so David, he's encouraging us not just to understand that God is good, not just to say like, yeah, you, you should, acknowledge that God is good. 
he's encouraging us to experience that God is good. And so ultimately understanding ought to lead to an experience that God is good. That's what it's designed for. Um, there's a story, and I'm not sure if it's just one rabbi or if this is kind of a tradition, um, but uh, there's a story of at least one rabbi who um, whenever he gets like a, a new uh, class of kids, so around first grade-ish, they're all at this point learning Torah, so the first five books of the Bible. Um, so it's like Moses' books. He will come into the class. The kids will be seated. He'll take out his copies of the Torah. He'll give, he'll distribute them to the kids, lay them on their desk. Then he'll take out a piece of cloth. He'll put it on top of their Torah. Then he'll take out a jar of honey, and he'll put it like a little dollop of honey on the cloth, and he'll say, take your little finger, dip it in the honey, and I want you to taste how sweet is the word of the Lord. So that's ultimately from Psalm uh, 119. And so, but the same idea holds true for us here. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what I love about that story is that it's a, it's a simple routine. It's a simple practice that they do to associate God's sweetness, the sweetness of his word with something real and physical. That honey is something that comes from God. That honey is sweet. The word is something that is from God. The word is sweet, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so ultimately, we can't force ourselves to taste the goodness of God. We know that takes a work of the spirit. The spirit has to stir within us to taste that God is good. But uh, we're going through this intensive this summer, and I think this is really good timing. The, the purpose of this intensive is to uh, form habits around seeking God in our everyday life. And so we, while we can't force tasting that God is good, we can put ourselves in situations more frequently to ask the Spirit to help us taste that goodness. And so in our everyday lives, how are we seeking the Spirit to help us taste that God is good. And so, yeah. Um, so we keep going here. Um, verses 9 and 10 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And so we'll get to fear of the Lord here in a second, but uh, there's one thing that's repeated a couple of times here. Uh, it's They have no lack. They lack no good thing. And so what does it mean to lack no good thing? And so uh, this psalm has a ton of stuff that I would really love to like dive into, and we just don't have time for that. This is one of those things. Um, so I want to just kind of quickly uh, highlight, uh, yeah, what it looks like to lack no good thing. And I think ultimately... I see it in, there's, there's a big difference. There's a sharp difference in seeking the Lord to meet the desires of our hearts that are already there and seeking the Lord so that he might change those desires of our hearts. Does that make sense? I think there's a difference between seeking the Lord so that we might gain the desires of our hearts that are already there versus him seeking him so that he might change those desires of our hearts and so that we then lack no good thing. To help us out, I think uh, Jesus says it a different way in Matthew 6. 
he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so he doesn't mean that whatever thing you want, like, what if I want a uh, Bronco Sasquatch? Like, does that mean if I seek the Lord that I'll get it? Like, that's not what that's saying here at all. (laughs) What he's saying is seek first the kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. That, if that is your true desire, God will work in your heart so that you will be confident and you'll know that you have everything you need. You lack no good thing. That's what it looks like to lack no good thing here. Um, And so that's what his uh, provision looks like. And then, uh, so yeah, so ultimately, uh, we're kind of wrapping up the songy song and uh, we're transitioning into the sermony song, but it's a really good transition because uh, he, he's, he's talked up, he's brought up the fear of the Lord, but ultimately uh, David's trying to get us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so how are we asking the Spirit every day to help us taste and see that the Lord is good? And in that, we have joy. I, I, I skipped over this, but in verse 9, it's 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That blessed is a different word than what David used to open up the psalm. David said, I will bless the Lord. But he says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. That's a different word for blessed. The first one is acknowledging one who is blessed. This one is kind of a happy is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. Joyful is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. And so as we ask the Spirit to help us taste and see that the Lord is good, joy comes from that. We have joy in Yahweh because of that, because we can taste and see that he is good, because in him we lack no good thing. And so we're going to uh, transition now to the sermony song. Um, so David says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so David's been like bursting at the seams with joy so far for being delivered. And he's been saying, happy is the man, joyful is the man who takes refuge in him. And now he, he transitions to, come, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. And it's almost like you're in a car with somebody who doesn't know how to drive at two feet and they have three pedals. Uh, it's like a jerky shift, and it's, it's, it seems unnatural to us. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's how, how do we find our joy in something that we also fear? And so scripture, whenever you read through the stories here, you see quite a few accounts of, of people interacting with Yahweh to some degree, to one degree or another. They're never interacting with him in his full glory. It's always limited to some extent. Uh, but every time, there's, there's a lot of different reactions, but every, there's one common thread through this. That one thread is there's, there's fear. Aaron mentioned it, or yeah, somebody mentioned it earlier, um, I think in prayer time. But yeah, Isaiah fell flat on his face and he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Moses, when he was talking to the burning bush, whenever he realized who he was talking to, says he hid his face because he was afraid. People fall on their face. They can't look at him because he is that glorious. He's that majestic and great. And so there's every time there's interaction with God or even his angels, there's, there's fear. And uh, 
David doesn't take away from the fear either. Uh, Hebrew and the Hebrew language, their words are very fluid. You can move them around because they don't get their meaning of the sentence based on word order. They get them more from uh, the context that they place at the end of each word. And so uh, in this uh, verse 11, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If we were to kind of rephrase that, keeping the word order, it, we'd sound like Yoda. Say, fear of the Lord, I will teach you. And so he's emphasizing fear of the Lord, I will teach you. And this word, it, it distinctively means fear. <laughs> There's an element of, of terror here. And uh, the thing is, after there's fear, after people interact with, with Yahweh, and after there's that initial reaction of, of coming across his glory and being terrified at it, you see a couple different patterns throughout scripture. Um, one of those, we see those in the enemy and Satan and uh, Saul to a lesser degree. Uh, one reaction, we see this in the Garden of Eden as well with Adam and Eve. One reaction is to be jealous of that glory. Uh, you made me that fearful. How can I make other people that fearful? I want that glory for myself. They spend their life uh, trying to attain that level of glory and then, in effect, live lives of bitterness trying to reach that end. But then a second reaction is to be terrified, but see it for, for good, see the goodness of God being the glorious one, seeing the goodness of him being the majestic one, the holy one, and wanting more of that. You see that in, in Moses, after he gets a taste of God's glory, he says, God, show me more of your glory. And God's like, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> but Moses, he wants to draw, he wants to lean into that. He wants more of that. And so this word that when David talks about the fear of the Lord, it's that second one that he's talking about. The fear of the Lord is, is meant to make you terrified. It's meant to show you as inadequate, but it's meant to draw you to the one who is adequate, who is sufficient. This fear is not meant to end at fear. It's meant to draw you closer to him. And so, um, yeah, so then David also kind of helps us out a little bit more with like what the fear of the Lord entails. Uh, he says in verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and turn your lips away from deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And so when, it, when we think about fear, we often kind of think about something that like paralyzes us, you know? Like fear keeps us from doing things that we ought to do because we're afraid to do those things. But this fear isn't that. This fear doesn't cripple us. It doesn't uh, incapacitate us. This fear moves us towards a positive action of that which is good. He says, seek peace and pursue it. God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And this is seeking that out on a day-by-day -day basis wherever you are, in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhoods. How do your coworkers interact with the fear of the Lord in you? How do your kids interact with the fear of the Lord in you? What about your neighbors? The fear of the Lord when appropriately experienced, produces the seeking of peace, the pursuing of peace wherever you are. The second thing it produces is it produces joy. David says in verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Saying everybody wants a lot of days of experiencing good. Foundational to that is the fear of the Lord. 
Fear of the Lord produces that which is good, and it brings you to joy because you get to see that which is good. And so uh, there's a few older, wiser guys that uh, talk about the fear of the Lord much more eloquently than I can. Um, So I have a few quotes up here. Uh, One is from uh, James Johnston. And yeah, I love what he says. He says, the great secret is that if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. And if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. I think that fears ultimately are tied to desires. Like you fear of losing something that you desire, right? And so as God works, as we, as we fear God and he reshapes the desires of our hearts so that we only fear God, what else do we have to fear? There's nothing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this same thing much more briefly. He says, fear God and fear nothing else. <laughs> That's very brief and succinct. Um, Gerald Wilson, I love what he has to say. He says, to fear God, Yahweh, is to pare life down to its essential core. He says, the fear of God is at the core of life. Why? Because acceptance that one is completely dependent on God's gracious, undeserved mercy. If we aren't realizing that we are completely dependent on God's undeserved mercy, then there are things that are up to us that we might fail at, and we fear doing that. And so therefore, fear of God is at the core of our lives because we realize that we are totally and utterly dependent on his mercy that to us is undeserved. And so whenever we match that undeserved mercy with Yahweh, the good one, the holy one, the righteous one, the magnificent one, whenever we pair our need with his greatness and we see him extending that goodness to us and protecting us, what other reaction is there except for like joy? There's nothing else. And so you can see how, yes, we fear God. But as we understand that appropriately, that brings us more and more joy because he brings us more and more into his good character. So let's keep going. Uh, Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so uh, the first uh, question that we have as we uh, jump into this, uh, first, I guess, first thing we notice is there's a pretty sharp dichotomy, right, between the righteous ones and the evil ones. There's a, there's a sharp division. And this is a pretty normal pattern throughout the Psalms and whatnot. Uh, but that, that begs the question, who are the righteous ones? And who are the evil ones? Uh, we'll come back to that. First off, we see what happens to the righteous ones. Uh, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous ones. His ears are towards their cry. In 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them. And here again, he delivers them out of all their troubles. There's a second time we hear that out of all. Uh, it's a comprehensive deliverance. He delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. What about the evil ones? 
the face of the Lord. So just as the ears of the Lord were towards the righteous, the face of the Lord is against the evil ones, those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That seems really harsh, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Like nobody is even going to remember that, that they were here. Not only are they going to be cut off, their memory is going to be like totally gone. Uh, they're going to be erased. And so regardless of who they are, it's, it's a great spot to be in if you're one of the righteous. It's safe. God protects you. He listens to you when you cry out. He hears you. He delivers you. If you're in the spot of the evil one, though, it's, it's, it's a dangerous spot to be. And so who are the righteous ones? Who are the evil ones? And I think David in a couple other psalms kind of helps us out. Uh, he wrote another psalm, and again, uh, he wrote two psalms that are very similar to each other. Uh, psalm 53, uh, he wrote this, and another very similar psalm is Psalm 14. And so in Psalm 53, verses 2 to 3, David says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So who are the righteous? David, for taking his word, he wrote the psalm we're in today. He also wrote Psalm 53. If we take David at his word, nobody's righteous. That would put everybody in the evil camp. It's a bad spot to be. Surely he can't mean that everybody is evil. I think Paul helps us out here a little bit too. Um, Paul in Romans chapter three. He's kind of doing a, a, a logical kind of question and response kind of pattern here. And he says, what then? Are we Jews, the, the God's covenanted people? the ones who have covenant access to him, the ones who have been taught God's law, the ones who have access to his presence in the temple and through the priests, are we, God's people, God's Jews, who are in covenant relationship with Yahweh himself, are we any better off? No, not at all. If we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both God's people and those who are not God's covenant people, are all under sin. And then Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 as proof. <laughs> he quotes David here, where we just were. And so who are those righteous people in Psalm 34? Surely David's not making them up. Surely they exist if he writes about them. I mean, it's scripture. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. First off, Third time, delivers out of all. Second off, what do you notice about the number of that pronoun? Delivers who out of them all? Him. Singular. Whenever we go back to verse 15, uh, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. Uh, whenever, in English, whenever we want to make something plural, we add an S to the end of it, or an ES, depending on how it, how it ends. Um, in Hebrew, they add an em at the end of it. And so the noun form of the righteous is sadiq. And so in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous ones, the sadikim. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of hasadik, 
the righteous one. Why? Why is that singular? Why would David switch from talking about those who are righteous to one who is righteous? Why would he do that? Many are the afflictions of the Sadiq. Yet the Sadiq lacks no good thing. We don't have time to camp there, but both are true. Why would David switch to singular? You guys are probably going to be tired of me going here, <laughs> but I'm going to take us here again. I think every time I'm up here, we go to this passage. Um, there's another passage that helps us understand the righteous one. It's in Isaiah 53. And we see that the intro to this, this one is at, the, is at the tail end of chapter 52. We see, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And so this, who does that servant contrast? He contrasts those who have fallen away. He contrasts those who are corrupt. He contrasts those who go their own way. He contrasts those who aren't good that David talks about. He's different from them. And so if we skip way ahead to 53 verse 10, Isaiah says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This, the wise servant, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then in verse 11, out of the anguish of the servant's soul, he, Yahweh, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you see that centrality of the transmission of righteousness there? This is another instance where the Hebrew mashes two words together for emphasis. And so uh, he takes the verb form of righteous and the adjective form for righteous, and he puts them right next to each other. And so uh, if we were to kind of uh, do some word gymnastics, it wouldn't make any sense in English at all, which is why we translated it the way we did. Uh, but it'd be something like, by his knowledge, my servant, the righteous one, righteous makes many to be accounted. There's that theme on the transmission of righteousness there, done by the righteous one. So that therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many who are now counted to be righteous and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus quotes that passage about himself in Luke's gospel. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So who are the righteous in Psalm 34? Get this, if we keep going, uh, verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Who's that? That's the Passover lamb. That's Jesus. His legs weren't broken, but his side was pierced to prove that he was dead. So who are the righteous in Psalm 34? The righteous are those who are accounted as righteous in the righteous one. Those are the righteous. They're not righteous because they're doing any good of their own. They're righteous because the servant is wise. The servant is good. 
and the righteous one gives his righteousness to those who are evil. So that those who are evil might then have their refuge in Yahweh. So that those who are evil might become righteous and have joy in their refuge in Yahweh. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. That the righteous would be counted among the transgressors so that those who transgress wouldn't be. So that those who do transgress could be those righteous that the eyes of the Lord, that the eyes of Yahweh are turned towards. Those who are evil, this poor man, the poor men and women in this room are those who are called righteous, who are righteous, who are legitimately, actually righteous because the righteous one assumed unrighteousness for you, suffered the penalty for our transgressions, bore the sins of many so that we might actually be righteous. Amen. And so now the face the ears of the Lord are towards those who have their refuge in Christ. Ergo, who have their refuge in Yahweh himself as he intercedes for us now. When those who have their refuge in Christ cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The very reason why the righteous one took on the transgressions of the many is so that this invitation would be wide open, that anyone could become one of those who is righteous. He bore the transgression of the many so that anyone might in him seek God himself and have refuge in him be safe in him and lack no good thing in him as they're in the righteous one, Christ. And so verse 22, to close us out, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So anyone who takes refuge in Yahweh will be free as the righteous ones because the righteous one has already been counted guilty on our behalf. And so this is what allows us to seek the Spirit and ask him that we might taste and see that, the, that he's good. It's because there are those who are righteous in Christ. In Christ, we can taste and see that he is good. And in tasting, we have joy. We have a fear of the Lord that then also produces more joy. We have the goodness of the kingdom breaking into this present world as we continue to, to fear the Lord and seek his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. 
we are able to sink deeper and deeper into the refuge of Yahweh, our God, the creator of the universe. So let's pray. Father, God, I pray that these words, that your word, that we'd be able to taste the sweetness and the goodness of them. I pray that uh, as we go forward and as we get distracted in the things of this of this world, as we have other desires that, that pop up, as we have things that, that vie for our attention, I pray that you would over and over again draw us back to the reality that you are the one who is good. And I pray that you would help us to taste that and experience that. so that we know that we have everything we need, regardless of what's going on around us. God, you say many are the afflictions of the righteous one. The righteous one promises the righteous many afflictions as well. And so I pray that in the midst of those afflictions, in the midst of those things that we fear, in the midst of those things that uh, want us to give our glory to them, I pray that you would over and over again be shown as the only one who is good. I pray that in tasting of your goodness that that you would bring us joy, you would refresh that joy that we might have it anew in Christ who has made us righteous in him. I also pray that uh, you would enable us to seek peace and pursue it where we are, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, within our families. And I pray that you would bring your peace to those places. God, uh, I pray ultimately that you would help us to taste your goodness every day. And I pray that you would use this community to, to help point each other towards that goodness over and over again, to remind us of what we actually have in Christ so that we might seek to go deeper and deeper into your refuge that brings joy and peace. It's in your name we pray, amen.